Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. My name is James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And ladies and gentlemen, there's no really way to get around it, so we're going to go straight into... Hellstrom Watch. We've got... We've got some... Interesting new stuff. We'll start with maybe the most concrete. We should probably point out that we are recording this a bit early. So a lot of stuff you're hearing today is old news for most of you. Yeah. Uh, So one of the things that, as we record this, was just announced this week is that Ryan Coogler is working on a Kingdom of Wakanda series for Disney+. Plus. Yes. And I can't help but wonder, is this going to take the place of Black Panther 2? So I looked into that. According to The Hollywood Reporter, as of right now, they are separate, and Black Panther 2 is still scheduled to begin production in July. Yeah, but... That could that could change at the drop of a hat, but as of right now, they are considered separate projects. Because didn't we get another project that was a, supposed to be a, a movie and ended up being a Disney Plus series? Oh yeah, the Boba Fett movie. Right, right. And, and and also, I think you could even make a case for Kenobi probably started out as a movie pitch. Almost certainly. Again, not not impossible. As of right now, they're saying two separate projects, but you never know. Yeah. I, I have trouble imagining that Disney would not want a feature-length sequel to one of their most successful feature-length Marvel movies. Except for the circumstances that surround the behind-the-scenes stuff. Sure, but 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 I also think that the way they're framing things now is whatever they do will be in tribute to the legacy left behind by Chadwick Boseman. Yes, perhaps. Um, in, in fact, one thing I was musing about in, in terms of differentiating these projects, could Kingdom of Wakanda explore the history of Wakanda? That's actually what was my first thought before I thought maybe it's replacing Black Panther 2. Because that's a thing that has been done in comics. Like, you you sometimes get, like, you know, the time that Captain America teamed up with T'Chaka during World War II and stuff like that. Yes. Um, so so I could see them doing some version of that. But who knows? It could, could at this point, it's early enough, it could go in a whole bunch of directions. Well, I mean, I'd be happy to see a Black Panther 2. I can understand why they might choose not to go with that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, that is possible with either the movie or the show um, would be exploring some of the characters who are not necessarily directly connected to Wakanda, but become connected. I, I, I'm not phrasing this well, but uh, a couple of characters that have been mentioned as possibilities to be brought in are... Um, oh, I forget her name now. Uh, there's a character from, I think, the Priest run of Black Panther who is sort of has the Killmonger story of being of Wakandan ancestry but not realizing it and so she grew up in America. 
But in the priest run, when she discovers her Wakandan ancestry, she moves to Wakanda and joins the Dora Milaje. And so you have this sort of story of a character who grew up in America, like, figuring out how to exist in this new, different place. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see something like that happening. Um, there's also uh, the the, st- the origin of uh, the White Tiger, I think. Ooh, I like the White Tiger. Casper uh, Cole, mm-hmm. who is sort of the, the flip side of that. Like, he's an American who is deemed worthy enough to get a synthetic version of the heart-shaped herb and thus becomes... Because he, he starts out imitating Black Panther. Um, like, he, he's, he's dressing up in a Black Panther suit doing stuff, and Black Panther is like, no, no, can't do that, but <laughs> you can take this other identity. <laughs> so so th- there are some characters like that that I could see doing interesting things with. In addition to, of course... Uh, continuing to explore the characters of people like Shuri that have become fan favorites. Yes. Although that actress has put out some problematic things on social media, which might preclude her. Yeah. Potentially, yes. Unless someone at Disney manages to get her to very publicly and very explicitly walk some things back. So, anyway, in addition to that, other Disney Plus news... James Gunn has been quoted saying that the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special will lead right into Volume 3. Yes! So it is, uh, in terms of story, it will it will serve as sort of a lead-in to Guardians 1, which I guess means it's probably set between Thor Love and Thunder and Guardians Volume 3, if we're coming up with chronologies here. Yeah, it would be. So I guess it'd come, out, it'd come right off the event possibly right off the events of Thor, Love, and Thunder, and then move on mm-hmm. to... Or at least coming off of the events of whatever their involvement is <laughs> in Thor, Love, and Thunder, depending on how much of that movie they're really in. Oh, I'm looking so forward to that. I can't believe we're getting a Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special. Yeah, Man. yeah. So... Um, so there's some new merch out for Falcon and Winter Soldier, um, like t-shirts and stuff. One of them is teasing Sharon Carter's role in the show. Uh, there's a t-shirt that I saw that is a wanted poster because Sharon Carter is apparently still wanted for violating the Sokovia Accords in Civil War. Warning, this person has extensive shield training. Do not approach. Is that what it says? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Wow. Okay. So that's pretty much it for the, the Disney Plus stuff, I think. There's some Spider-Man 3 related things that, that have come up. One is, I don't know if you remember this, but... When Far From Home was coming out, because so much of that story was about them going on this like uh, class trip abroad, yeah. one of the one of the viral marketing things they did was uh, there was a there were social media accounts for Flash Thompson. Okay, because throughout the movie, the the characters are like posting the social media and stuff. So there 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 are existing Instagram and I think Twitter accounts for Flash Thompson who uses the handle number one Spidey fan. Yeah. He's started posting again. Oh, no. And he's been drinking the Jameson Kool-Aid because Flash Thompson is now Team Mysterio. Oh, damn. And has turned on Peter. Oh, no. And he, he's share, he's sharing Daily Bugle things. It One of the things suggests that he's given an interview to the Daily Bugle because he knows Peter. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah. In addition to that, there are some Easter eggs in some of those posts. So the top of one of the Daily Bugle pages that he shares has a story that references an Area 52 in New Jersey. 
which I'm pretty sure is the sword outpost at the Maximoff anomaly. Oh, ooh, go on. Uh, that that's all there is to that. Ooh. But but at the very least, they are acknowledging connections, even if, I mean, I think. And we'll get there, but I think you and I are inclined to think that there are going to be some connections between Spider-Man and what's going on in WandaVision. Mm-hmm. But but even if it's not, it's nice that they're acknowledging that that exists. It just also, as an aside, uh, when he's not sharing Daily Bugle stuff, he also shares, like, Insta-story polls. You know, the polls where you can make people choose this thing or that thing. Um, and one of them is... Uh, Betty Brant and Ned Leeds, and the image of Ned has a little orange goblin hat drawn on his head. <laughs> so these are all things that have just been hiding in plain sight on social media. Oh boy. Oh, Marvel, you rascals. And for those who are not aware, Ned Leeds is one of the characters who is suspected of being the Hobgoblin in the original Who is the Hobgoblin story back in the day. Yes, although it later turns out he was framed. Right, right. Spoilers for a story from the 80s. Sorry, guys. Right. Was that was that a Roger Stern yeah. joint? Yeah, Roger Stern. Yeah, I thought so. Anyway, um, also, uh, just in general about Spider-Man 3, Tom Holland, who has gotten much better at avoiding spoilers during interviews... <laughs> uh, they, they put a little microchip... Uh, recently said... <laughs> <laughs> recently said, quote... I can say it's the most ambitious standalone superhero movie ever made. You sit down, you read the script, and see what they're trying to do, and they're succeeding. It's really impressive. I've never seen a standalone superhero movie quite like it. End quote. We'll talk about it. (laughs) Uh, So that's it for Spider-Man. I've also got some Thor Love and Thunder stuff here. Uh, First off... If you've seen the images floating around, there are some some set photos of Thor in a new costume. I can't remember when we talked about this before. We did. But, uh, offline. Okay. But uh, but Thor, Thor's got a new look, at least for part of the movie. For the most part, I, I think I suggested to you previously, uh, the outfit looks like it came out of the closet from the Guardian spaceship. Yes. Like it's got that kind of Guardians Ravagers look. Also, the boots he's wearing appear to be more like his classic comics appearance. They're sort of uh, yellow and black. Uh, but also, a thing that has been pointed out, and now that it's been pointed out, I can't unsee it, is he looks a whole lot like Thunderstrike from the 90s. Of course he does. With with the vest and... Yeah, yeah. he does. Red. Um, so, maybe this is a result of Jane Foster being the new Thor. Could they be combining the Thunderstrike appearance with bits of Odin's son, the Unworthy? Ooh, ooh, that is good. I mean... Because because Thunderstrike fits Taika Waititi's aesthetic far more than the, like, high fantasy-looking Odin Sun look. Yeah, but the problem I have with that is I would have liked... When Chris Hemsworth decides he's not doing Thor anymore, we could keep on doing... That's when you bring in Eric, yeah, Man- Eric, Eric Masterson. Eric exactly. Not the Eric Masterson we'll be talking about later today. It's funny you say that, because I actually had a note about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that can still happen. I, I'm just wondering if, is that your workaround to give them both hammers? Is Does does Thor, or Thor Odinson, manage to get his hands on the Thunderstrike mace? Hmm. Hmm. Maybe. Because it's effectively identical to Mjolnir, so he should be able to use it. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Um, that's all speculation, but if nothing else, his costume 
suggests Thunderstrike. Yeah. Uh, also, additional set photos show Thor with what appears to be a large white goat. Well, he had goats to pull his chariot. Right. So, so it, I, it, I think we might be getting Tooth Nasher and Tooth Grinder. Yes. Which are the immortal Asgardian goats who pull Thor's chariot across the cosmos. You gotta love some chariot pulling goats. Uh, so I'm guessing if he if he loses the hammer to Jane at some point, he will need the goats to travel because he can't fly. Oh wow, you're right. Because even in the in the Marvel stuff, when he flies, he's actually throwing the hammer with the wrist strap on. Yes, that's true. He's even, I, David had so. him explaining at some point. He's like, I just gotta throw it and hold on. <laughs> uh, and then finally, Craglin, Sean Gunn's character from the Guardians movies, has been seen on set wearing a version of Yondu's cybernetic headpiece, which, if you'll recall, was related to the ability to control the flying arrow. Yes, it was. Uh, apparently, this matches Craglin's blink and you miss it cameo in Endgame. Um, he was among the reinforcements that Doctor Strange summons, but was so far in the distance and, and like, there so briefly that you really couldn't see him. But but apparently, he has sort of taken up the Yondu position in Guardians. That's good. They kind of hinted he was going to do that at the end of Volume 2. They did. They um, did. But but it, it's a pretty different look for him, because he, he, he had hair before. Now he's bald with the, the headpiece. Wow. You're right. So... Anyway, that's pretty much it for specifically Hellstrom Watch stuff, but we should probably transition to talking a little bit about this week's episode of WandaVision. And again, when we say this week, um, we're recording this this morning. They dropped the episode, uh, a very special episode. Around 3 a.m. Yeah, about around 3 a.m. Um, I woke <laughs> It was when they dropped I it. I woke you up to make you watch it. Uh <laughs> This is episode five, a very special episode. Um, right. So we're going to come back with a spoiler-filled discussion right after this. Tuesday on a very special formula. I fucking told you, Lawson. I know. I, you, you, you called it. You were right. You were right. I was like, Evan Peters is going to... Because I'm hearing the Evan Peters. I'm hearing Evan Peters. You you, so, you told me no. Yep. You told me no. Evan Peters is not going to be the show. I, I know. People had their, I know. People had their wires crossed. But no, I he's in the show. I, I desperately want to take the uh, the the Wanda Maximoff like the the famous panel of like her whispering "No more mutants" and and just change the text to say, "Well, maybe some mutants." <laughs> okay, now. Here goes our first question. Is Evan Peters playing the Quicksilver from the Fox universe? That we don't know yet. And the reason I say that, that there are some possibilities. Yes, there are. Uh, I think the most likely possibility is that he is at least a version of that Quicksilver. Okay. That that he is the version from the, the X-Men reality pulled into this reality. The reason I say that that's most likely. I you think. think that's most likely? The reason I say that is because right before he appears, or not right before, but in the scenes before he appears, Wanda has the talk with her kids about how you can't bring dead things back. And it's like the way in which she is altering reality is evolving to match the the weirdness of, of what's going on. So Vision is likely dead. 
but she did try to bring him back. And it's not going well. No. So rather than bringing her Pietro back from the dead, her powers found a Pietro that's not dead. Possible. But I would say... Or whatever or whatever else might be influencing her has found an alternate Pietro. Yes, we'll get into that in a minute. I feel like the safest, the safest explanation is that she has cast someone from Westview as Pietro. And imbued him with his memories and powers. And imbued him with memories and powers. And that the whole fact that it's Evan Peters is a nice little nod to fans of the ex-franchise from Fox. That that was my second possibility. That it's someone from the town who has been appropriated into the identity. Yes. Um, the, the, reason I, the reason I went with the other first was also just because we know that Wanda's going to be involved in multiversal shenanigans. Yes, that is my point against that one. Except for the fact we know this leads into Multiverse of Madness. Right. So who, And either of these things at this point seems... Neither would be necessarily surprising at this point. You know, they could go either way with it. Now... I am... I, I think the more ambitious decision would be to say, this is actually Pietro from the Fox universe. I think that's the more ambitious storytelling decision. But, like, people online are like, oh, this is how they bring the mutants into the Marvel Universe, into the MCU. I'm like, uh, uh. Like, it could be the start of that. Yeah. But it may not be the, it may not be, like, this in and of itself doesn't necessarily bring more, bring mutants into the MCU. Yes. Also, something you referenced just a second ago, um, there is, despite the fact that uh, Monica stated it's Wanda, it's all Wanda, there is still a very good chance that there is someone else still manipulating Wanda. Well, and even when when Pietro shows up, she says, I didn't do that. And it's not clear if she's lying or not. And of course, he comes in at a convenient point to stop... To interrupt. To interrupt the argument. Yeah. 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 Who's this popsicle? Yeah. To 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 interrupt the, the argument. And the look on Vision's face the whole time says... Yeah. This is some bullshit you're bringing up to... <laughs> this is some bullshit you're doing to get out of this argument. And yet Wanda also seems genuinely confused. Yes. So, yeah, it, it's fascinating. It's I I have really enjoyed how fun and, and clever and, and often unexpected this show has been. Yes. Um, another thing that isn't directly related to WandaVision, but it occurred to me while watching, and now I can't... It's one of those things that once I think it, I can't unthink it. What if Reed Richards is part of S.W.O.R.D.? Mm. And they've been off-world. There's a chance of that. There's a good chance of that. Even if, even if it's not even that they've been missing for decades, what if they want, went off world after the blip? Like, like they were not like Fantastic Four yet. They were just like sword operatives, and they went on a mission and never came back. We're going on a trip in our favorite rocket ship. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but right, like, like it seems like now, given where we are now, Sword is the is the organization that the FF would be affiliated with. Yeah, and again, there's a lot of room to play around that five-year period. And and we already know that they're doing missions like that because Monica's told she's grounded. Yes. We've seen their launch pad. Yeah. So yeah. there's nothing stopping them. Ooh, what if... I just feel like they're laying the groundwork for a lot of stuff that they're not even hinting that they're laying the groundwork for. Yeah. What if Vision... Not, sorry. 
What if Reed Richards is one of the scientists who's taking apart Vision that we see in this episode? Mmm. Yeah. That was an upsetting image. It was. Although it also it also reminded me of like the like mid to late nineties in DC comics when every so often seemed like every other fight for a while but red tornado would get blown to bits and then you'd have the scene of someone putting him back together there's some other things to talk about with the episode for example did you notice that wanda's accent came back well it when she emerges from the anomaly the accent comes it fades in and out during the conversation yep it's like she's repressing it yes because she is so fucking angry like or Maybe because she's exerting so much effort to hold the anomaly together, or... Or or maybe it's harder for her to stay in character mm-hmm. when she leaves the anomaly. Yep. Which, especially if there is something having an effect on her, that effect would probably be strongest inside the anomaly. Yes. So. Also, head of sword guy? Yeah. We're not supposed, we're not supposed to trust him, Oh, right? no. No, 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 no. He was totally playing using vision as well. A couple things with that. One... It seems like there's more to Sword's in investigation of this than we originally knew. Okay. Because he was aware nine days earlier that Wanda had stolen Vision's body. Like, if he's the director of Sword, surely he was aware even if no one else was. Almost certainly. So it seems like th- there's information that he was sitting on that would have been relevant to their investigation. Considering they knew that Vision and Wanda were in the anomaly, yeah. Um. So that's one thing. Also... Just the way that he is intent throughout the episode of framing Wanda as, like, a terrorist threat. Mm -hmm. Like, leaning back on, like, her identity during Age of Ultron. Yeah. But also, also, and this could be nothing. Could be, could be nothing. So, apologies if I'm wrong. Okay. Could be nothing. But his name is Tyler Hayward, right? Okay. The Hayward family already exists tangentially connected to the Marvel Universe. There's a Brian Hayward in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He's a Hydra agent who's injected with the centipede nanotech that turns him into a superhuman. Mm-hmm. And he dies in S.H.I.E.L.D. custody. And then his sister shows up later. Like, there is an existing Hayward family that is Hydra-connected. In, again, not MCU proper, but just to the side of MCU. Yeah. It's possible. Ooh! Now, that could be that could be too much of a stretch... But also, Evan Peters just showed up. Yeah. Evan Peters kind of <laughs> just showed up. It, okay. Like, and the Fox universe is way more removed than the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. universe is. True. So, okay. There's also something else. Um, Monica, refer- when, they're, when they're planning on making the vehicle that can pierce the anomaly, mm-hmm. Monica references knowing an a aerospace engineer who they could get, who they can call in. And starts messing around on her phone. And she mm-hmm. so she stops in mid and starts messing around on her phone. Presumably contacting somebody. So, right. my first thought is, who are the aerospace engineers we know in the Marvel Universe? Right, right. And um, there are a few options that we've already met in the MCU. Um, sure. The kid from Iron Man 3. He could have become an aerospace mm-hmm. engineer. Mm-hmm. Perfectly possible. He's the only one I could think of off the top of my head... Except for somebody we've referenced already, Reed fucking Richards. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. I was trying to think of who else she might know. And... Because at first I was thinking, well, maybe it was someone from, like... 
Like, maybe they're referencing someone who was from her era of the Avengers in the comics, Mm -hmm. you know? But, like, I can't think of anyone who would be aerospace from that era. Because, like, most of the 80s recruits were people like, like, Dr. Druid, you know, Wonder Man, and, like, not people who are known for their scientific expertise. I mean, Black Knight's an archaeologist, right? Yeah, something like that. And you start to get War Machine around that era, but, but it's War Machine as Iron Man, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Of course, it could be that she still has some scroll connections from when she's a kid. Oh, God, I didn't think of the scrolls. <laughs> oh, speaking of her being a kid, apparently yeah. she's not that fond of the topic of Captain Marvel. I, You know, I'm, I'm, I was wondering about that, because on the one hand, is she mad because Captain Marvel disappeared and wasn't there to stop Thanos in the first place? Mm-hmm. Because theoretically, if... If Captain Marvel had been on Earth the first time that Thanos showed up, then the blip wouldn't have happened and she would have not lost years of her life and not been able to be there for her mother. Or is she mad at Captain Marvel for not finding a way to save her mother? Right, right. I mean, her mother was her Um, best friend. mm -hmm. She should have done something. She's got access to all kinds of alien tech. Why doesn't she find an alien cure for cancer? Or, uh, I also wondered if maybe I was misreading the tone of that exchange, and was she really just sort of annoyed at acting head of sword guy for, like, bringing up Captain Marvel in the first place? Mm -hmm. As part of his, like, deflection back toward Wanda being untrustworthy. Because it was all part of that conversation. True. And it's hard to say, but but yes, it did seem like there's some unresolved tension between her and, and Carol Danvers. Which we f- we can reasonably assume will at some point get resolved because this actress has been cast as Monica Rambeau in Captain Marvel two. This actress, who is amazing, by the way, I am really yeah, she's she's very really good. liking her in this show. Yes, and and impressively looks like a grown up version of the kid from Captain Marvel. Yes, that is impressive because that that's that's always hard casting to like find the right person to be the aged up version. So yeah, good stuff. Um. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, uh, little thing, but uh, we finally have a MCU explanation for why Wanda's powers are hexes. Because of Darcy. Right, because the because the, the anomaly manifests in hexagonal shapes. Yep, and we, we've seen the hexagonal shapes show up a few times, even without the anomaly itself. Like, you know, the outro picture to um, the first episode of WandaVision, mm-hmm. they... You know, instead of the right. Isla Lucy heart, it zooms out to a hex, yeah. hexagram. So, which, which I mean, we can imagine like those credits and things are manifestations of the the fiction that's being generated. Yes, but but yeah, it, before it was pointed out to us, it was already there. Yep, which is is cool. I, I've and also what's his name Hayward made a big point of of like emphasizing that. Wanda doesn't have any kind of cute code name or anything, which means that by the end of this this series, they will be calling her the Scarlet Witch. Yep. Yeah. It's going to be that asshole who names her that. Just like... Probably. No. So. But anyway, like like I said, we're recording this early, so by the time you guys hear this episode, you'll have a whole... This will be old. Yeah, you'll have a yeah. whole other episode of WandaVision under your belt that we haven't seen yeah. yet. And, and there will be answers to probably some of the questions that we have been raising. Exactly. But you know what? We've got to wait a week, so um, we're going to speculate. But now that the speculation is done, we're going to take another quick break, 
and we'll be right back with our look at Tales of the Zombie number six. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about Cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. (laughs) Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. What happened was true. bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. Rated R. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre opens today at theaters and drive-ins everywhere. Welcome back to Believers, and we're going to continue our episode right now with our coverage of Tales of the Zombie number six, one of our black and white mags. It feels good to get back to Tales of the Zombie, honestly. This one, of course, is from July 1974. Editor-in-chief is Lynn Ween. Cover artist is Earl Norum. Editor-in-chief is Lynn Ween. Cover artist is Earl Norum. Our first story is Child of Darkness. Writer is Steve Gerber. Artist is Pablo Marcos. Inker is Pablo Marcos. The zombie, Simon Garth, wanders the swamp before hearing the familiar sound of voodoo drums. He excitedly investigates and finds the same congregation that presided over his death, including the priestess, his former secretary, Layla. Simon tears into the congregation, even walking through a bonfire and catching fire, before being put out and calmed by Layla. The two go to a nearby cabin for help, with Layla approaching and Simon waiting in the woods. Despite being initially turned away by the woman who lives in the house, Layla is pulled inside by the woman's husband, who feels Layla will make a fine gift for their son, Teddy. The man drags Layla to a ramshackle shack in the back of the house, tossing her in to the feral man inside. The wife is horrified by this apparent murder and runs away from her husband into the woods, straight into the undead Simon. The husband attacks Simon with an axe, but when he finds that ineffective, he releases the feral Teddy from the shed to battle the zombie. After a savage battle, the husband goes to hide in the shed, only to emit a horrible scream shortly afterwards. A moment later, Layla emerges from the shed holding the bloody axe. Explained that feral Teddy had actually spared her, but she had had to kill the husband when he entered the shed. The wife expresses remorse for the experience she and her husband put Teddy through, and for attacking Layla and Simon, who walk away into the swamp. 
So, to start things off, you made the joke already, but I still just can't get over the fact that the guy's name is Eric yes. Masterson. The, 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 ma- the, the husband here is named Eric Masterson. And, and as we, we suggested in our, our Hellstrom Watch segment, Eric Masterson later on is the name of the guy who becomes the new Thor in yes. the late 80s. I think I think he becomes Thor in like yeah. eighty nine, and then later on, and then later on when Thor becomes his own man again, uh, Masterson's consolation prize is the Thunderstrike yes. mace. He gets to be Leather Thor. Yep, part of one of the finest lineups of Avengers to ever grace comics in the mid. Eric Masterson's first appearance was four, volume one, three ninety one, in May nineteen eighty eight. Yep. And he became Thor shortly yep. after that. Uh, I I allude, of course, to the uh, the incomparable Avengers arc, the Terminatrix Imperative, <laughs> which featured Thor, Thunderstrike, Captain America, U.S. Agent, Iron Man, and War Machine. <laughs> I will never let that go. But yeah, so so this so this zombie story. Um, eh, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's fine. I wonder. I wonder. If this was inspired by the the case of Genie, the feral child, mm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the case of Genie. I um, vaguely, but I don't know the details. Like I know that name. But, yeah, I, I I teach about her in um, my psychology class when I'm teaching about opportunity windows and childhood mm-hmm. development. Um, Genie was a little girl who, because she had some problems walking because of a problem for hip, her father assumed that she was. Um, to turn use terminology of the day, mentally retarded, mm-hmm. and because of this, he basically kept her in a cage in the back room of the house and forbade the other family members from having much interaction with her. And because of this, she missed a lot of the op- the uh, opportunity windows for, say, like speech development, uh, motor skills development, and this was the first thirteen years of her life until she was found by social workers who, again, had no idea this child even existed. Um, and she was rescued from the situation briefly, unfortunately, uh, because of a whole legal thing. She ended up, actually ended up going back to her mother at one point. But um, she became a study of opportunity windows and uh, the importance of them that is still used today. Again, like I said, I teach it in my psychology class. Where, you know, if we lose those opportunities in our development, are they gone forever? And she would have been found in... Early 70s, right? Yeah, early 70s. So a few years before this. And, of course, when she was found, her story was a national news story. Right, right. Because it's so horrific. And, like, the father shortly afterwards ended up killing himself. Um, it, Evidently, it was she, a whole is thing. Uh, she is still alive. She is still alive. She'd be in, in her in 60s. In state care, yeah. Yeah, she's she'd be in stake here. She'd she'd be in her sixties. Of course, we don't actually know her real name because right. um, California, where this happened, uh, California um, victim laws do not allow for the disclosure of names in cases like that. Right. Um, but yeah, she would be in her sixties, but she would still be alive. Yeah, that that makes that makes a lot of sense. Because we yes. my first my first thought because usually with these horror stories, my first thought is. Okay, what thing in pop culture might have might have been on the minds of the people doing this? And so mm-hmm. my first thought was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, yeah, 
However, that doesn't come out until later this year. Uh, 74, it's like late 74 is when Texas Chainsaw Massacre comes out. Okay. Uh, so, so that that would not be it. But yeah, I think your theory of the, the genie case makes a lot of sense. Because the whole... De- that, I kind of left out my summary because I don't know how to incorporate it because it's way too complicated to explain in a summary. The whole setup here, and we get a setup in a text piece beforehand, is that the father believes that people are basically animals mm-hmm. and there's very little separating us from our bestial origins. And the mother believes that you know people have a spark of good in them instilled by a creator. And basically they decide to test this theory on their son. Right. right. It's really more a really morbid setup for a story. It, yes. And also a fairly strange diversion from... And I guess this is a thing that I just have to get used to with Tales of the Zombie, is I feel like the Simon Garth formula is we are taken so far down a narrative path and then something intervenes and directs Simon Garth towards something different. Yes. Like, we, we rarely get a lot of narrative closure... <laughs> in these Simon Garth stories because every time he gets put onto a path, something intersects with him and pushes him in a different direction. Yes, you think we're going to get some resolution to Simon Garth's story, but really you're getting whatever. This other weird thing. And and we still might. So where we leave things, like he is still being guided by Layla. Like they're going back into the bayou. So we might get some resolution. It's just this is a very odd sort of diversion from that path. Not, again, not bad. I, I, I like uh, the story was was engaging, and I really like the art, um, especially the the way that they depict Simon's increasing deterioration throughout the story. Yeah, there there like I said, there's a point here where he wanders through a bonfire. And yeah. He gets a lot of flesh melted off, yeah. and he looks really cool. Yes, yes, because he's like skeletal, but like bits of the flesh have melted and fused, and yeah, yeah. But it, it it looks cool. It's not that there's not a lot to it. It's that there's not a lot to the Simon Garth part of it. No, and I kind of wonder about Teddy because, yeah. like I said, Teddy Teddy has missed a lot of opportunity windows, so he will not be having a normal life. Right. Quotation marks normal. And now, granted, he is also drawn as being more, like, physically monstrous than what would what would be expected from a child who was just locked away, you know? There's more yes. going on here than that. Yes. Like, they are pumping this kid with steroids. Or something. He, he honestly would not look out of place among some of the other books like like the Frankenstein monster. Yeah. Or even Werewolf by Night. It's a fun story. I'm really happy to get more Simon Garth because, yeah. honestly, I've missed this Yeah, book. it's been a while. And and this is always... It, it's such an interesting experience reading these stories because they don't follow the same narrative progression that A Tomb of Dracula or any of the others do. Um, having a literally zombified title character pushes the exposition and the narrative power onto other characters, and that's an interesting way of having to tell a story. It is, and, and you know, we said this story is fine, but, I mean, the story is satisfying. Yeah. It feels like it has meat on it. It does. Meat it does. on the bone, as it would be, as it would be, but and, I, and like, I didn't I dislike it. it as a diversion, but it's also a diversion that has a very clear, like, 
thematic and narrative purpose. You know, like it, it, it's a story that it doesn't feel like a fill-in. Exactly. I li- I liked it. It's just you know it's it's not earth-shattering. I just liked yeah. it. It's so it's exactly the sort of story that you want to see in an anthology. Yep. So speaking of stories in anthology, let's go ahead and move <laughs> on to the next one. So I originally thought that there were three fiction pieces here, two comic stories and a prose piece. Right. But this prose piece, the Completat Voodoo Man by Chris Claremont, is nothing but a goddamn book list that has been slightly fictionalized. Yes. Yes. Like it's basically a list of books about zombies and voodoo presented in the form of like a, a conversation about what are some good books to pick up about zombies and voodoo. Right. Right. Yeah, that's not it's fiction. well written. Sure, I mean it's Chris Claremont. <laughs> yeah, it, this, it's, it's it very exactly good. Early good Chris would, Claremont. It is exactly as good as you would expect a list of voodoo books by Chris Claremont to be. Yes, <laughs> uh, you know, it, I mean it's, it's a short story, so it's slightly less dialogue and text than the usual Chris Claremont comic. But <laughs> right, and, and the the Gene Colan art is good. In fact, there's at least one illustration there. Where it's like, oh, okay, I see. He was already getting ready to do uh, do the the Brother Voodoo story there. In fact, I would not be surprised if some of these pieces are actually taken from other stories. Because mm. the one on top of 41, I guess, like, that looks an awful lot like a panel from a Brother Voodoo story. Yes, it does. So that leads us right into the next story, which is a comic story. And that is... End of a legend. Writer is Doug Munch. Artist is Gene Colan. Inker is Frank Ciaramonte. We pick up from the cliffhanger in Strange Tales 173 with Brother Voodoo and Laura Lee Tate, the prisoners of the Black Talon, and Laura Lee about to be sacrificed to the Dark Lord. Brother Voodoo escapes, however, with the aided strength of his brother Daniel's ghost. After making sure that Laura Lee is somewhere safe, an epic fight between Brother Voodoo and the Black Talon ensues, with Drum coming out on top before getting hit on the back of a cane. He awakens again in chains and discovers that it is in fact Mama Limbo behind it all, planning to use the virginal blood of Loralee to grant herself eternal life, and the Dark Lord being just a ruse. As Mama Limbo goes to sacrifice Loralee herself, Drum once again breaks free of his chains. This causes one of the larger fragments of the inverted cross to fall on Mama Limbo, crushing her and breaking her spell on the others. Brother Voodoo and Loralee escape as the police arrive, including Loralee's father. So we get the return of Brother Voodoo in black and white. Yeah, and so I I love the art. Gene Colan's yes. work is fantastic here. Yes. I really, really, really wish it was colored. Yes, and I actually wonder how close this came to being a color comic. It, like, there, it looks like it was drawn to be colored. Yes, because there are a few pages here that are very different from what we usually see in a black and white mag, but are very in place for a color yeah. comic. Yeah, uh, anything in particular you had in mind there? Because I, I can think of a couple. Some splash pages yeah. Yeah. that you wouldn't necessarily get in black and white mags, which are usually you know, a bit more judicious with their real estate. Well, you've got fewer pages, and so 
usually fit as much story into each page as you can. Exactly. Like, you might do a half-page splash instead of a full-page splash. Yep. But here, I think we get two splash pages? So we got the title splash, and then yep. later on... Yeah, there is another one. I remember it. Uh, when he breaks free of the breaks free of the cross. Yeah, which is such a good image. Like that's it awesome. is such a good image. But I can definitely tell that was meant to be colored. Yes, yes. Um, I was also thinking of the scenes where Brother Voodoo uses his like sort of his version of astral projection when he uses his brother's spirit to possess people. Like mm-hmm. I feel like those images would have landed better colored. Because the outline of his brother's spirit just sort of blends into the background in a black and white image. Yes. Like it, in a color that. in a color panel, you would imagine that the background would be one color and the spirit would be a different color. Like yep. a, a brown or gray black ground with like a light blue spirit or green spirit or something. So But as far as the story goes, I really dug yeah. it. Yeah. I mean it's for one thing, it, it's a good conclusion to this this conflict with the Black Talon. The right. fight scene is, is pretty fun. Okay, I got real, like, Captain Kirk fight scene energy. This. Yes, yes. The fight Brother between... Brother Voodoo needs no weapons to deal with the likes of you. Yeah, Brother Voodoo, but I'm surprised he didn't do the um, Kirk's hammer punch. Mm-hmm. Yep, the overhead. (laughs) Also, I I don't know what page... Oh, actually, I just randomly turned to it. Uh, Page 49, top right corner. Hmm, chef's kiss. I shall be honored, Black Talon, to usher you across the threshold of hell. That is some premium smack talk. Mm -hmm. That's good dialogue right there. That is really great. Just And, I mean, really, we did not need this much real estate for this story. This story takes up a lot of real estate. It's got, like, two whole fight scenes. Right. But none of it is wasted. Well, and another thing that I noticed, and and I wonder if this was the last thing added to the story, there's a whole lot of recap at the beginning. And I think, yes. Because I think they are assuming, probably rightly, that nobody was reading Brother Voodoo. Like, they looked at the sales numbers for Strange Tales and assumed that they would need to give a bunch of recap. Especially jumping from one book to the other. In fact, we get two whole pages of recap that could easily be cut without you realizing that anything was cut. And I guarantee you those were the last pages added. So how do we feel about Brother Voodoo coming into Tales of the Zombie? It fits, I think. It It does. It's a different vibe. It's more of the sort of pulp adventure story than we're used to in this mag. But I would rather this than some of the non-Simon Garth voodoo stories we've gotten in previous issues this this exactly uh, just like it feels like you're getting more bang for your buck it, <laughs> let's look at like Dracula Lives where we get the main Dracula story and then we got some milquetoast Dracula stories that took place f- with him like uh, try to think of an example the Pirate Queen when we talked about last time where you know it starts out so well and it just fizzles <laughs> Or like, and that happens sometimes with with Tales of the Zombie too, where you'll get a really interesting premise, and then either the creative team just wasn't right for it, or they don't have enough pages to really make it work, or whatever. Like I'm thinking of the the Western one, 
from I think it was last issue, uh, maybe an issue before that, but the where it was like where it was like cattle ranchers doing voodoo on each other, and it's like voodoo masters of the old west is exactly the kind of weird genre bending story that I would normally love, but they just didn't do it well, and they didn't do it well partly because I don't think they had a good handle on the concept, but part mostly just they didn't have the pages for it. Like, that was too high concept for a story that short. Whereas Brother Voodoo is a character where you can do an anthologized set of short stories with him, you know? Like, as long as you've got two or three pages to do a fight scene, and the rest can be set up and, and, and fall out from that. I mean, we talked about that with Dracula Lives. And in fact, I shouldn't even reference the, Drac- the, the Pirate Queen story, because really the worst defender there is the Blood Bank yes. story. Oh, absolutely. Where, you know, we could have easily taken that story out, add pages to other stories in this book, and you had a far better result. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if it's like, you know, they want to have a certain amount of stories in the book so people don't feel ripped off, or I don't know what with these magazines. Because, honestly, I would have felt more satisfied with better stories and mm-hmm. not having that text piece rather than the stories that have a good start like the like the um, Detective Dracula story, like the Pirate Queen story, and then... Because if, if this magazine was Dracula Lives, that Brother Voodoo story would have had its page cut page count cut by two or three pages. Um, the Simon Garth story would have had its page count cut by two or three pages, and there would have been one more prose piece. Yep. Honestly, I like it better this way, with the yeah. um, Tales of the Zombie. Where, you know, we're getting... It still thematically fits. Yeah. But it's a complete lane change. It's a completely different character. And it's funny. Tales of the Zombie, I think, is the magazine that has evolved the most since we started it. But I still really like it. Because if you remember, the first issue of Tales of the Zombie, the thing we really liked about it was that it split the Simon Garth story into three stories and spread it throughout the mag. Which gives you a sense of continuity. I still think that's a cool idea. It was cool. But barring that, this is a good format, too, in that you give enough pages to tell a good Simon Garth story and enough pages to tell at least one more other good story, and then the rest is filler. Yeah, and I'm wondering how much of this is them trying to figure out what works for the magazine. I think that's right, and, and I think they are probably fighting a losing battle there. Um, yeah. Because, at least as of right now, we are... We have crossed the halfway point on Tales of the Zombie. This book only has ten issues, and we're on number six. Yeah. It's not the end of Simon Garth after that. He continues appearing elsewhere, but but we've we've got four more issues of Tales of the Zombie. Are we at the halfway point of the 70s era Marvel horror, though? Uh, Like the big horror boom. We're probably approaching... We're probably approaching the downward swing if not now then soon so uh, Tomb of Dracula runs to 79 and that's probably the most popular of the, the yes. monster mags or monster comics so so we're approaching the uh, the downward swing there okay. and, and of course it's as we get further into that downward swing is ironically where we'll really start getting crossovers into the rest of the Marvel Universe which you know? we're actually looking forward absolutely. to absolutely <laughs> I mean, like, I can't wait till we get to read the the X-Men comics where Claremont brings in Dracula. Yep, 
Yep. And we're actually going to talk about one of those next next episode. But before we get there, we do have some more notes about Tales of the Zombie. Oh, there was the weird explanation of Mama Limbo and her what she's trying to do. And yeah. it's so weird and so off the mark. And it was the one thing I really, really did not like about the story. Yes. And it's the explanation that her the whole ritual she's trying to perform is not actually voodoo. It's derived from the diary of Countess Elizabeth Bathory. <laughs> Who we have Which, previously seen in Track Track Dracula. Right. Lives. Canonically canonically existed in the Marvel Universe. But yep. that's just I I can appreciate the attempt to connect things, but I don't like it. No. Let let the voodoo characters be voodoo characters. So yeah. Yeah, that was not good. In fact, my reaction to that re- revelation was to quote Laura Lee at the end of the issue. I I don't understand. Yeah, tell me about it, sister. I don't understand either. Just like, okay, whatever. But yeah, but that's, you know, that's one not great story beat in an otherwise really entertaining adventure story. Yeah. The, the only thing missing is if if we hadn't needed the recap. Like, if this had been a Strange Tales story, where the recap was not necessary, or at least not as big, at least one of those pages could have been added to the ending, where we actually get her father showing up and resolving the tension between him and Brother Voodoo. Oh yeah, I want I want that scene. That, that scene where, you know, the father confronts Brother Voodoo. And like, sheepishly has to acknowledge that Brother Voodoo saved his daughter. Or refuses to believe he saved her. Fair. Like, all this voodoo stuff is your fault. Yeah, exactly. You know, how do I know you're not mixed up in all this? Right. You're a menace! Right, right. And and again, like, that's something that I feel like, had we not needed the two pages or so of recap, we would have gotten at the end. But it's it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And again, I am... it, It pains me at how undervalued the brother voodoo character was during this era of marvel he should have gotten a big long run of stories he really should have and i'm wondering how long he's going to stay on in tales of zombie or if he's going to drop off on us too yeah um and i am going to cheat a little bit here and just take a peek (gasps) do you want to know what our next brother voodoo story is what is it it is marvel team up number 24 Wow. Um, that's going to be August of 74. Wow. Okay. Um, so so that, next next month in our coverage. Uh, yes. Yes. Who knows how many weeks away for us. Right. And he's going to take a break from several issues. He does not come back to Tales of the Zombie until the final issue. Uh, Brother Voodoo uh, is in Marvel Team-Up and does not appear again until the final issue of Tales of the Zombie. Ah, oh, that's a shame. And... Oh god, this is weird. Then he has a four-issue run through Tomb of Dracula, uh, a three-issue run through Werewolf by Night. Come, uh, jumps into Marvel two and one. I've read those. I've read those <laughs> issues. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that's a weird in, one. When we get there, that's a weird one. Yeah, and and, and by this point, we're into the eighties. Mm. So I so. I really do believe at this point that this story was just dumped here. Yeah, it was. It was. So this is supposed to be a Strange Tales issue, and they dubbed it here. Or it was supposed to be Brother Voodoo issue one, mm-hmm. and they dumped it here. Like, honestly, I could even 
I could imagine a, a scenario where instead of spending so much time on Hellstrom, Marvel Spotlight becomes a Brother Voodoo title for a while. It'd be more enjoyable. Well, right, and and, and that's that's the function that Spotlight is supposed to provide is like trying out a solo character before they get their own title. Yes. Which I guess Strange Tales was hit, was Brother Voodoo's own title, so that maybe that shoots down my number one. Well, but I mean, there's something to be said for it. Marvel will do one or the other. They will either retitle a book and keep the numbering, or they will launch a new number one under the character's name. And, and we've seen them do both historically. We have. You're right. We have. But... But... But I, I wish we had more Brother Voodoo. I mean, I'm glad that there are some appearances down the pipeline. And we'll talk about them. E- even at least one more in 74. Yep. So that's good. But? But at this point, we're looking far enough into the future that we should probably transition into our other title. Oh, yeah. Um, we are going to go ahead and take a quick break. And we'll be right back with Frankenstein Monster number 11. Right after this message. Prior? Yes, it's Superman 3 Movie Minute. On Superman 3 Movie Minute, we'll be examining Richard Lester's 1983 film Five Minutes at a Time. This time around, we don't just have Superman. We have evil Superman, Lana Lang, a scary robot lady, and yes, Richard Pryor. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Oh, you don't know about me and him? Me and Superman? Join me, the son of Sven Gulli, tonight at 7.30 for my Halloween special featuring the movie Son of Frankenstein. Let's take a look at it right now. Oh, look, the monster is bringing the child up to the pit of bubbling... What is that? Baloney! A bubbling pit of baloney. You want to see more baloney? Tune in tonight at 7.30. You'll also see some of Sven's finest bits from the past, including Mr. Robert's Neighborhood. That's the son of Sven Gulli, Halloween special. Tonight at 7.30 here on Channel 32. Be there and trick or treat. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our second and final book for today is The Frankenstein Monster number 11, and in the end, the cover date is July 1974. The writer is Gary Friedrich, the artist Bob Brown, the inker Vince Coletta, the letterer Annette Kowecki, the colorist Linda Lessman, and the editor Roy Thomas. The monster has been rendered unconscious and strapped to a table as Vincent Frankenstein prepares to do surgery, replacing the monster's brain with that of Ivan the Hunchback. Frankenstein reasons that his uncle's mistake was using a normal brain, with all the intelligence that comes with it. By contrast, Ivan's brain is, in Frankenstein's words, inferior and easier to control. Ivan resists, however, realizing that the procedure would likely kill the monster, who he now considers a friend. He attacks Frankenstein, but is interrupted by Betty, Vincent's maid, informing him that his wife, Lenore, needs him. Betty is dismissed, however, when Ivan refuses to let Vincent leave. Betty leaves, but warns that Vincent may never again see his wife alive. Finally, Ivan relents and allows Frankenstein to check in on his ill wife, but only because he cares for her, not Vincent. Ivan promises 
that one way or another, Vincent will die. Frankenstein enters to find his wife crying out in pain, and her doctor nowhere to be found. Meanwhile, in the lab, Ivan frees the monster from his restraints. Unfortunately, the monster awakens as Ivan's blade lingers over his head, and he instinctively defends himself. Ivan protests that he wants to help, but the monster is so overwhelmed with fear and anger that he cannot understand. Finally, Ivan fights back and the two brawl through the lab. Ivan gets the upper hand, but hesitates with his sword lifted above his head. Before he can decide what to do, Vincent Frankenstein enters and shoots him in the back. Ivan collapses, once again appealing to the monster as a friend. With his dying breath, he asks the monster to kill Frankenstein. The monster takes up the sword and approaches Frankenstein, only to be shot in the chest. He collapses, weakened from blood loss, but he continues moving slowly toward Vincent. The scientist fires his pistol again, point blank, and the monster falls. Frankenstein weeps at the loss of his life's dream, and from outside the lab, Betty calls out that his wife could be dead at any moment. Frankenstein opens the door to the lab, but just as he closes the door, the monster revives and throws the sword, pinning it to the door. Outside the lab, Betty confronts Frankenstein with a pistol of her own. She reveals that his wife has died, and Betty blames Frankenstein for the death. She kills him, avenging her mistress and then goes to bid Lenore a final farewell. The monster manages to crawl to the laboratory door, and, at the sight of the dead Frankenstein, manages to whisper no, for he has once again been cheated by fate and humanity out of achieving his goals. Now without purpose, the wounded monster resolves to leave so that he does not die in a house of Frankenstein. He staggers away, unaware that Lenore had in fact died during childbirth, and that in the care of Betty is Vincent and Lenore's infant son, who is now the last Frankenstein. I'm going to be honest, mm -hmm. I forgot we were covering this comic until halfway through this episode. <laughs> I mean, I read it. It's not, like, story-wise, it's not especially memorable. No, it, it really isn't. Like, partly because the Frankenstein monster is barely a character in it. Barely. He spends the first half of the title unconscious. When he does wake up, he's still mute and is in a rage and, and not rational. And everything happens around him instead of with him participating. Exactly. But the artwork's okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's fine. The contempt on Betty's face throughout this issue is palpable. Oh. She hates Vincent. She hates Vincent so much. And her very first appearance is a scowl. Yes. Like she looks furious. She is so done with his shit. Yep. But she loves the um, mistress so very much. Right. Yeah, it's uh so first off, uh milestone, I guess. Uh this is our final Gary Friedrich issue of The Frankenstein Monster. Oh wow. As of next issue, I think Doug Munch takes over. Okay, that'll be interesting. He wrote that Brother Voodoo story we just liked a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, I think there's a continuity mix-up in this issue. Okay. Um, the lab in issue 10, like Vincent, Vincent's lab, was under a townhouse. In London. In London. Now we're under Castle Frankenstein. Yes. Also, I don't remember a wife last year. Didn't come up. Did not come up. Weirdly... 
Not the last time we see that baby. I imagine. <laughs> but you don't see it as many times as you'd expect. Oh. <laughs> um, I thought we were going to get a new title, Baby of Frankenstein. <laughs> you know, um, in addition to appearing in the next issue, which makes sense, um, we will see a grown-up version of this Frankenstein years from now in an issue of Invaders. Yes. Yes, we will. Holy... I I forgot all about those Invader issues with the Frankenstein monster. And Basil Frankenstein. Wow. Who has not been named yet, so I guess that's a spoiler. But his name is Basil. Basil. (laughs) Right. But, well, because he's named after Basil Rathbone. Basil Rathbone, right? (laughs) I I know that podcasting is not a visual medium, (laughs) but I am giving James such a look right now. Yes, the look he is giving me is fantastic. <laughs> the look of revulsion. He's like, the fuck you say? It's like, so imagine, if you will, when Kermit the Frog's face scrunches up. <laughs> That's kind of the mood. Actually, I, I'm pretty sure um, I'm pretty sure your face here is the face that the maid gives. Frankenstein <laughs> <laughs> is <laughs> Yeah. Uh, oh. yeah, but so uh, in case you're wondering why we're joking about Basil Rathbone in the universal horror film Son of Frankenstein, the the title character, the Son of Frankenstein, is played by Basil Rathbone, and so it is a, a wink at the audience by naming the this this heir to the Frankenstein uh, name. And, uh, Basil. and of course, the reason I'm confusing him for Spice is just a fucking. <laughs> But yeah, so, but that's years from now. That's like 78, 79, something like that. But we've got some Invader issues in our future. That's exciting. We do. Well, I figured we'd be doing Invaders anyway. I mean, we're going we're gonna to do uh, Baron Blood, right? Yes. We, like the Nazi vampire? Y- yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's good. So I, I had already assumed that we had some, some Roy Thomas Invaders in our future. Okay. I mean, yes. Yes, of course. Uh, although the although actually the the one with Frankenstein is not a Roy Thomas that's a Don Glut. Oh well, it's still Invaders. I'll take it. Sure. Wait, does that mean we're covering the Golem issues of Invaders as well? Mmm, potentially. Okay, we'll we'll talk about it when we get closer. We'll we'll have to. I mean, that's as again as we get into the late seventies into the eighties, where the monster books are drying up. We'll have to pick and choose what crossovers, I guess, we want to do. Yeah, guys, as as Marvel gets into the late seventies, this is going to be a get to be a very weird show. We're going to be doing like single issues of all kinds of stuff. Yep. Yep. <laughs> like you'll have an issue of Doctor Strange here. There might be a two or three issue run of Defenders over there. <laughs> if there's a series that you really want us to cover, and when we, when we get around the, the late seventies of Pitch Marvel, it to Marvel us. yeah, tell us. Let us know. Like. Tell us and, and and make your case for why it counts. But, you know, back to this issue. Right, right. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's got some, some fun moments that work well. Uh, like, I, I do really like the image of the monster waking up with the blade right next to his face. Yeah. Partly because his expression is not so much rage as, the fuck? Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of that going on today. <laughs> but you, you do kind of have to feel bad 
for Ivan here. Oh, he's the victim of this issue. He is definitely the victim. I mean, not only does he get basically murdered for no goddamn good reason. He's also the hero of this of this. He's the hero. Issue. He's sweet. He's kind. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. But also... He, tr- he tries to save the monster and he shows that he cares about Lenore. Like... They also miscolor him on the cover. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because the, the, he's a redhead. He's ginger. He's a ginger, yeah. But on the cover... And they, they give him the the sort of shock, the blue-black hair. Yeah. Um, they also make him look like the villain. Yes. And they ascribe Vincent's motivation to him. Yes. My body is ugly, misshapen, grotesque, and so I want yours. But of course, he doesn't. Right. He doesn't right. want to hurt his friend. Uh, also, the uh, woman on the cover, who, who is that? Oh, Miss not appearing in this issue. <laughs> well, right. And so we, we do get, I didn't even include her in my summary, because she plays, like, we, we've got Lenore, like, is actually mentioned in the first page. Like, the, the setup you get is Lenore on her deathbed, Frankenstein strapped to the table uh, in the lab, and then Vincent, like, bound up in both of their fates. But, like, if that's supposed to be Lenore, she's miscolored, too. Yes. Also, she's a lot more mobile than she is in the she's, comic. She's very much not pregnant and not dying. Exactly. So, Which, how long did it take for you to figure out that she was pregnant? Oh, immediately. <laughs> right, right. I, I think I think it was confirmed for me the first scene in the book when when Vincent goes to her bed. Yes. Well, when when the maid calls for calls for him and comes wants him to come to her, I'm like, oh, yep, she's. Pregnant. I, I suspected at that point, but what confirmed it was when when Vincent is like the most joyful moments of my life turned into a nightmare. Because he's talking about both Lenore and the monster. Yeah. Also, he picked really shit timing. Yes. Yes. Like, he went off and found Frankenstein in that cave where his wife was very close to giving birth. Yes. Like. And clearly having a difficult go of it. Yeah. And you know his wife did not go with him because there's no way her right. doctor is letting her travel. Right. So he left her there. And how much time has passed? Like, like does he also have a lab in London? Like, have, has there been travel between places and we just don't know about it? No. I, I, because we're picking up exactly where we left off last issue. Fair. Except we're in a completely different place. So, obviously, there's a lab under a townhome in, in London. And in that lab, there's a tunnel. <laughs> and that tunnel goes all the way to Castle Frankenstein. Under all of Europe. They could have saved so much time digging the, 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 the tunnel... For the cha- the channel, if they just known about Frankenstein's tunnel, right? Yes. <laughs> Obviously, that is the only canonical solution here. Exactly. I, I demand my no prize. <laughs> I'll email it to you. <laughs> um, I'm a little confused. I, I guess we've never seen Frankenstein's monster get shot before. Like, is this the first time we've seen him get shot? Because normally injuries don't have such a drastic effect on him. It might be, actually. Although, didn't he get shot at in the, the, the magazine in the present day? Yes, definitely. And the bullets didn't do anything to him, basically. Right. That's weird. Very weird. But the continuity between the magazine and the comic has been a little bit iffy all along. Like, we, we've had our questions before. Yes. But yeah, it, it's 
It's fine. It's once again, I did not read the backup story. Oh no, I definitely skipped the backstory on this one. I really just could not be bothered. <laughs> I feel like of all the books we've talked about, Frankenstein is the one that has had the most noticeable dip in quality. Yeah, probably. Because, like, the the beginning of the Frankenstein comic is great. When it was adapting Mary Shelley. Was it Roy Thomas adapting Mary Shelley, by the way? No, it was, uh, what? Oh, it was Gary Friedrich. Yeah. Okay, so same writer. It was Friedrich and Plug originally. Okay. So Friedrich was writing, Plug was drawing. So, yeah, again, a definite drop in quality. As soon as they start doing non-adapted stories, this book nosedives in my opinion it dropped off yeah well and even we talked about how its crossover with dracula was just not as interesting as werewolf's crossover with dracula no i mean the concept the the stakes felt less the i i i basically forgot we had a crossover dracula but i definitely didn't forget we had a crossover dracula and werewolf by night so for what it's worth we have crossed the, the halfway point of this title, too. There are 18 issues of the Frankenstein monster, and we're on 11. So there's, what, seven issues left. Okay. But, and you know, I, and I know our listeners are out there saying, but James, what about, you say this is the this is the biggest drop-off in quality that you have in any of your titles, but you guys are always shit-talking Ghost Rider. Well, there's a difference there, my <laughs> friends. That one was Ghost Rider was never good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, the best issue of Ghost Rider was that Marvel team-up, and that's because Spider-Man was in it. Yep. <laughs> that, is, that is correct. Well, I'll take that back. It's because Spider-Man was in it and because the villain was the orb. And I'm pretty sure Gary Friedrich didn't write it. <laughs> that the, That's a good combo. That's a good combo. I I will say, I am curious. Again, we're, we're past the halfway point, so obviously it doesn't pick up enough for sales to improve. No. But... I am curious what a change in, in writer will do to this book. Because we do actually have examples of books getting better, but still getting canceled. Because, sure. like, the original X-Men title. Mm-hmm. You had Roy Thomas writing it and Neil Adams' artwork. And it was great. Yeah. But no one received reading. And a marked improvement from the end of the previous run. Yeah. But nobody was reading it because everything that came before it was just kind of humdrum. Yeah. It's also, it's interesting to me that with the writing team, with the writer changing, that this issue ends on such a sort of cliffhanger Mm -hmm. with the monster bleeding out outside the castle. Yep. The writer on that team up issue, by the way, was Lynn Wein. Which is why it was good. Exactly. But I'm not wrong, though. That is, in fact, the the issue of Ghost Rider we have liked the most. With the orb, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> An actual good villain. Yeah. I, I know I know the yeah. orb gets a lot of shit, like from fans. Like Orb is Look awesome. at this weird little ghost rider villain. Here's the thing. Up to this point, the orb is the best ghost rider villain we've seen. Except for literally Satan. But everyone we've seen has been an agent of Satan. Right. The orb was the only like villain villain that was not a demon. We had dude floating on a fucking cloud throwing lightning bolts at people. Yep. In Las yep. Vegas. For yep. some reason. Yep. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think Frankenstein is probably the biggest drop-off. Because the only other thing that I can even think of 
So yeah, Ghost Rider has pretty much always not been great. Yeah. Like that, which is its problem. Like it was there was there's not been a drop off because it's just been consistently not our favorite. Yep. The other comparison I would maybe make would be the care. Again, not in terms of title, but in terms of character. I think our one of our biggest disappointments has been Morbius. Okay. Just in that one, his initial Spider-Man appearance is really good. And he almost immediately gets his own mag and now his own color title. But it's just never lived up to expectations. Like, he's always been, like, the Marvel monster that was wholly created by Marvel. You know? Not an adaptation of something. And yet, he's been kind of a disappointment. Yeah. That said, Adventures into Fear has gone to some fun, weird places, and I'm here for that. Oh, yeah. That might that it might be on the upswing, even though that's another book that's accelerating toward its end. Okay, I, I did just look it up because I was curious. Our next yeah. issue of Ghost Rider, uh huh, written by Tony Isabella. I knew that was coming. I didn't know. I couldn't remember if it was next or not. It is. We're getting a lot of creative team change-ups right around now. Yes. Because, for example, uh, in addition to Frankenstein, we've got the Ghost Rider change. I feel like somewhere along the way we get a change in one of the other titles. Maybe it, maybe it's Fear, actually. I, I can't remember. but Because uh, Gerber had been doing Fear, right? Yes. Um, and then he moved to Man-Thing. He moved to Wait, Man-Thing. Wait, no, he's still doing Adventures of the Fear of Morbius. He was, yeah, but I think that's about to change. Aww. It's not until the beginning of 75, but but eventually Doug Munch takes over that book, too. I'm okay with it. Sure. I mean, that, that's not a bad thing. It means is it probably not as weird as Gerber, but he's a good writer, <laughs> you know? But anyway, I think we are on the precipice of some changing tides in the world of Marvel Monsters as we cover these books in the middle of 74. Yeah. In fact, we're actually going to be looking at a big milestone in our next episode. Yeah. Because we're going to be talking about the first issue of Giant Size Creatures, number one, featuring Werewolf by Night, and a new character for us... Yeah, first to know. First to know. <laughs> Tigra. Yeah. Tigra. And also, we're going to be looking at giant-sized Spider-Man, number one, featuring Dracula. Yep. So two super-sized books. Not mags. They're full color, but they're they're larger-than-usual titles. Yep. And I, I say first to know. Not actually accurate. Tigra is a new version of an existing character. This is right? the cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not to be confused uh, with Hellcat, that's a different right. character. Who we will different also character. talk about on this show. Because we have to. Yes. Heck, I think we got to talk about Spitfire. We might. Because she gets vampire powers. Shh. Spoilers. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, new books coming, giant sizes. That's one thing that we do start to see is as these magazines start to fade out. We have the giant size books coming in. Yep. And we'll see some more of those, I think, as we go along. So so that's something to look forward to. But yeah, these, these should be interesting. And uh, and that giant size Creatures is a Tony Isabella joint. So. Nice. Anyway, if you would like to contact us and tell us what issues we should talk about in the late 70s, why our WandaVerse observations are so off base, or... <laughs> How we should stop shit talking Ghost Rider. You can always reach out to us at our email address. It's tombofideas at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash tombofideas. 
And of course, there's our Twitter, at Tomb of Ideas. And we are proud members of the Cinepunks podcasting group. That's right. That means that in addition to our show, if you go to Cinepunks.com, that's Cinepunks with an X, um, you can find all kinds of other great shows covering various corners of pop culture and media, including the flagship Cinepunks show, Cinema Smorgasbord, Horror Business, Weird Obscure and Possibly Unsafe, and much, much more. In addition to those shows, you can find all kinds of articles about movies, TV, music, and other pop culture. So check out Cinepunks.com, where you'll find our back catalog and a whole lot more. But, until next time, who's this popsicle? (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers, Excelsior! This is why we have editing. This is why we have editing.